Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. This is Jason Gewertz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and our guest on this episode is Peter O'Reilly, the Executive Vice President of Club Business and League Events for the National Football League. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into what it took to broadcast the NFL Draft in April, an event that was forced to move from the Las Vegas Strip, where hundreds of thousands of people were expected to attend, to, of all places, the basement of NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and the hundreds of living rooms, kitchens, dens, and couches of prospects, general managers, coaches, owners, and fans. It's an amazing story of logistics, technology, and perseverance. But before we begin, this podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 will be held at the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas, October 19th through the 22nd, 2020. This year's conference will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink and NGB Best Practices Seminars, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. When the coronavirus pandemic began sweeping the United States in March, leagues that were in play were faced with difficult decisions. Most of them, of course, ended up shutting down their seasons indefinitely. Uh, Fortunately for the NFL, the league was not faced with the decision to suspend games since its season had recently concluded with the Super Bowl in Miami. But the football offseason in recent years hasn't been much of an offseason. In fact, the NFL draft has become the league's largest spectator event. You might recall that for years the spring draft was staged in New York with Radio City Music Hall hosting from 2006 through 2014. In 2015, however, the league opted to rotate the event in other NFL markets. Chicago hosted those first two years, and then Philadelphia in 2017, Arlington in 2018, and Nashville in 2019. That last event in Nashville drew an estimated 600,000 visitors over three days. Whether that number is accurate is almost besides the point, since it looked like every human being on the planet was in the city's downtown for the event. But in 2020, plans called for the event to be staged in Las Vegas, timed with the Raiders' move from Oakland and the launch of the new Allegiant Stadium just off the Strip. The draft itself called for prospects to arrive by boat along the fountains at the Bellagio with a main stage in front of the new Caesars Forum. And it's not hard to imagine that with parts of the Las Vegas Strip closed to traffic, Las Vegas was going to far exceed 600,000 attendees. But on March 16th, thanks to health concerns over the growing pandemic, the league was faced with the difficult decision to turn the event into a virtual experience. Suddenly, Roger Goodell was going to be announcing the picks from his basement. And that left league officials with just four weeks to decide how they would pull off a virtual experience that they had never anticipated or planned for. Imagine hundreds of cameras needed in residential locations around the country, technology that could ensure picks were coming in correctly and in a timely fashion. And that's not to mention how you get hats with the correct teams into the hands of prospects after they've been selected by those teams. At the center of these decisions was Peter O'Reilly, the executive vice president of club business and league events for the NFL. Uh, O'Reilly has been with the league since 2005, when he joined as vice president of fan strategy and marketing. He took over the events division in 2014 before being named executive vice president in March 2019. In this conversation, Peter will take us behind the scenes to learn how the league came to its decision to hold a remote draft, the logistics behind the three nights of drafting, and the many contingencies the league had to have in place to pull it all off. 
We'll also talk about the prospect of fans in attendance at future drafts as well as the upcoming NFL season in the fall. In the end, more than 55 million people watched the 2020 NFL draft by far a record, and the league announced during the festivities that it would return to Las Vegas with an in-person draft in 2022, the next open date on the schedule. Hopefully there won't be a need for drastic decisions again like the ones that were needed this year, but in the meantime, we invite you to listen in on how the 2020 event took its most extraordinary turn. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Peter O'Reilly, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Uh, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Congratulations on everything that you and your team were able to pull off just recently with the NFL draft. I think, Peter, for this conversation, I kind of want to start with last year's draft and kind of work our way up to the events that just took place a couple weeks ago. And I'm curious if I had told you, Peter, at the end of last year's draft that this year's draft would have the highest viewership of all time, I imagine you'd probably be pretty thrilled with that. But I'm curious if I had told you that the draft was going to be held in Roger Goodell's basement instead of the Las Vegas Strip. What do you think your reaction would have been? Um, yeah, I would have uh, looked at you pretty strangely, Jason. I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, as we came off of what was uh, a really special three days in Nashville last year on Lower Broadway with 600,000 fans and musical performances, Tim McGraw and others, and just great energy and an incredible town and partnership with the folks down there. We were certainly looking forward to Las Vegas and building upon that and doing some really unique things in Las Vegas, which fortunately we'll be able to do now in 2022. But if you had, uh, yeah, if you had raised the prospect of fully virtual and in Roger Goodell's basement, I'm not sure I would have connected <laughs> the dots. Would have been a lot, a lot of dot connecting. Yeah, you mentioned that number. That was the estimate, about 600,000 people. And it certainly looked that way, just optic-wise, on, on television, at least. Um, I imagine you guys were feeling pretty good coming off the event last year. It seemed, for an event that's only grown every year, uh, something about the visuals in Nashville seemed to have uh, set that on an entirely different trajectory, it seemed to me. Yeah, that was... Uh you know, again, that first year going to Chicago and then for two years there in Philly and then Dallas. And, and those were all really special and they all built upon each other. But Nashville was, you know, it just lays out, you know, that town and way we're able to kind of create this this canyon on lower Broadway of, uh, of fans and all the honky tonks there. And um, they were just incredible partners. Butch Spiridon and the team down in Nashville are um, first class. So that one, you know, we, we started to each year it became a broader audience, especially on site in terms of moving beyond that avid fan who's following every single pick and going to that broader family audience, that more casual fan and kind of creating this oasis in the off season. So we're looking to build on that, but we built on it in a different way and learned a ton while we were at it. Yeah, well, before we get to the virtual component, let's talk just for a moment about Las Vegas. You guys had obviously gone pretty far along in your planning process, but talk to me briefly about what the original plan was. You you were obviously planning to use some of the iconic locations on the Strip, and I imagine your expectations were to have as big, if not a bigger event than you had had the year before in Nashville. Yeah, that was the plan. We, this was the you know kind of coming out party for the Las Vegas Raiders, the first big event in La planned to be uh, just leading into the the Raiders playing in Las Vegas this fall, which they will. So we had uh, a couple of different locations, uh, one of which where the main theater would have been was right next to what's just opening now, the new Caesars Forum, just off mm -hmm. the strip with the backdrop of the high roller wheel there. So 
building out the theater there, um, having that inner circle of really avid fans from all 32 teams right there, having, again, kind of the, the college game day set from ABC, as well as the ESPN and NFL Network sets right there, and then also using the Bellagio Fountains as, as one of our locations for the red carpet and uh, as an ancillary stage right on the strip there, which would have been pretty special. And again, we hope to do that in 22. So that had uh, components of the prospects on uh, on boats coming out to the, the floating stage on the Bellagio and using a lot of the powerful visuals and, and water imagery and projection there to create some powerful visuals. So that was the plan up until March uh, 16th, which was the day when we canceled all public events in Las Vegas. So yeah, that's where we were, we were headed. Give me some insight too. You mentioned, Peter, all these different hotel properties you're working with, but in the typical NFL draft, um, I know you were working with the Las Vegas CBA and you worked very closely with the sports commissioner of the CVB in your host city. But give me some context of uh, how many partners you have in an event like that. You know, In the case of Las Vegas, you had quite a few properties that you were working with uh, that had a piece of this. We, we do. And, and the, the LVCVA, which is the CVB out there in Las Vegas, is an incredible partner and, and will be as we now do more and more in Las Vegas. So we're working so closely with them as well as with the Raiders, with Caesars, who's, a, who's our official partner, but also working with other properties clearly across the strip. And, you know, we're able to get some thanks to the county and to uh, our partners out there. We're able to get some unprecedented things done that were in those plans in terms of shutting down portions of the strip to be able to build out what I was describing along the Bellagio and really be able to use kind of a takeover of all of the marquees there. So really all of the partners in that town were behind this in a really unique way, which was powerful. And then obviously all of our NFL partners were ready to uh, um, descend upon Las Vegas in the, in late April. So it's definitely evolved, which is uh, which is a great thing. The draft has evolved from a ballroom to a theater to now kind of a citywide event and a bit of a, a fan pilgrimage, which uh, we hope to, to get back to next year in Cleveland. Right. So you mentioned March 16th. That's the date that the NFL made its decision to go to a virtual event. Peter, walk me through a little bit what was happening at NFL headquarters leading up to that day as you were trying to to make this decision, which could not have been an easy one for obvious reasons. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously leading up to that, we were we were doing as many others were, which was just following the virus, following the impact of the virus and following the state and governmental guidelines that were being put out there and really understanding what might be possible. And then it was, you know, it was very clear that it would not be possible or appropriate to have have fan events in Las Vegas. And thus we made that decision, which was clearly a difficult one for fans and our partners and certainly for Las Vegas, but they were great in working through that and all of those conversations. And then in that stretch soon thereafter, things, as you know, were changing daily. So we were continuing to really evaluate each day what are what what are the right things to do and how do you bring it to life and it wasn't instantly go from no fans to commissioner's basement if you will um, and everybody mm-hmm. virtual was really thinking through what are the different ways that we could execute the draft and can we still accomplish what we set out to do with the draft and do it safely and efficiently and with competitive equity. So those underpinnings were there as we started to evaluate options beyond a a physical event in Las Vegas. 
Right. And then uh, obviously circumstances came that uh, that it appeared that virtual was sort of the only way to go, I would imagine, after a certain amount of time. Was there was there any discussion, Peter, just as far as, I mean, once you decided that was the direction that you had to go, one, I guess, whether to do it at all, and two, if you did move forward with it, kind of what the tone would be, you know, knowing yeah. what the current situation is? Yeah, a lot of a lot of thought and discussion around that. And as with any any project or event, we were just really clear on what we wanted to achieve around this and kind of kept going back to that filter um, in order to say, are we still able to achieve all those things? And there were there were really four core objectives, the first of which was that objective that I stated, can we do it safely? And we're going to do this within all guidelines. There are going to be no exceptions. We're going to do it safely. Can we do it efficiently? And can we do it with competitive equity? So those that was kind of, can we operate this? And then secondly was, can we still do right by and honor the prospects, the young men who are entering the NFL family and their families? And can we do that? So that was, can we still do that? We won't have them together in Las Vegas. And then the third objective as part of the filter was, can we provide an appropriate escape for fans and provide some hope and, and engage them in a way that allows them to hopefully for three days and, and for those windows, get their time, get their mind off of uh, everything going on. And then fourth, and then probably most importantly was, can we do good? Can we use the platform of the draft and the, the reach of the draft to have a positive impact, to pay tribute to healthcare workers, frontline workers, everyday people who are making our lives go? And then can we raise money? And not everyone was in position to give even a dollar, but for those who could, could we raise money in partnership with six national nonprofits who are on the front lines and, and allow that money to go right to work at helping. So that was the filter in deciding, yes, we're going to move forward. And yes, this can be a positive thing for fans and for communities. Right. So let's get into uh, just a little detail on how this came to be. So once you decided we're, we're doing this virtual draft, what is that communication process like from the league to the teams? For starters, who are you even dealing with at the teams? Is it their IT departments? Is it their video departments? I mean, what, who's the frontline person at the teams once you make this decision to start what must have been a very long conversation yeah. logistically of how, how you'd pull it off? It's kind of all of the above. You're, you're really, it took all, uh, you know, it took a, a, a village of folks across the league and clubs, incredibly talented group and talented village of people to make that happen. So those conversations are engaging at all levels of the club from the owner and the president of the club to just get alignment there. Um, and then certainly with the GMs and coaches, obviously the GM, the general manager is front and center around the draft and ensuring their most important elements are, can we do this efficiently? Can all, can I do this in a, with the technology at hand, can we do this in a way that allows us to, to draft in the way we, we need to, um, even if we're remote and not in our draft room? So we're dealing with the GMs and, and working through that and the team on our football operations side, we're in our IT side. And then absolutely the IT team, they are, were and are rock stars in terms of both the league IT team led by Michelle McKenna and then the club IT personnel who are really ensuring that we could have the, the connectivity. And then the other piece of it is you've got the draft, the selection process itself, yeah. which is, can that work? And you test that and you mock draft that and can that all work? And then you got the TV and social and digital component. And that's where the team, both at ESPN and NFL Network and our broadcast operations team are really working through, okay, so we're saying you're going to bring in 600 different feeds in an environment where 
our facilities in Culver City, California are shut down. NFL Films is shut down. ESPN is working on a skeleton crew. How do we how do we make that work and use the capabilities of kind of video call centers and other things to bring in feeds from prospects' homes around the country, all of the GMs and coaches' homes, fans' homes, which was you saw behind the commissioner. So those were the the layers. We had a uh, video conference pretty much every day with a group of about 45 people internally across NFL departments that really just dug into each of these pieces and worked each of these areas and solutions uh, hour by hour, working with the clubs and our partners and with ESPN. Peter, how did you get the actual camera equipment to all of these places? Were, were people using their own equipment? I mean, you mentioned all these uh, you know, hundreds of different locations you were at. Are you shipping equipment to these people? How, how did they actually get what they used? We are. So we created uh, kits. Um, and our, our, again, our IT team was building these kits in their you know, basements and garages and then shipping them out to prospects and general managers and coaches. And we sent, uh, take the, the prospects, for example, we sent two phones with Verizon service out to each of the prospects' homes. One was the kind of always on camera that you saw kind of the wide shot of the prospects. And then we had an interview camera that they would come over to to FaceTime with the commissioner or interview with Susie Colber. Uh, and then we also sent them a little tripod, a little small light kit, some Bose headphones, um, and then other elements that are more just uh, amenities to make their night fun. We also sent uh, each of them 32 new era caps. So whichever team picked them, they pulled out the right cap and put it on. So those kits went out to about 60 prospects whose homes, who led us into their homes to experience this really emotional moment. And then we did similarly with the coaches and general managers. And you saw those and they set those up in their homes. Most of those were really fixed cameras that uh, without audio. So you kind of saw coaches and their kids and their dogs all, uh, you know, coming together and experiencing that. But then, uh, you know, any interviews were really done on their on their own personal devices. I'm glad you brought up the caps. Uh, this is the part of the podcast, Peter, where I tell you this entire podcast was an exercise in me wanting to find out how you pulled off the caps for all of these people. <laughs> I was watching with my son and my wife, and they all three of us had the same question of, do, do they just have a cap for every team in case they get selected? <laughs> I'm glad I could answer that question, but that- <laughs> Credit goes to our partner, New Era, who uh, was on it and uh, sent 32 calves to each of them. So, What happens to the other 31? They get to keep them or hand them out to their friends? They, they keep them. I'm sure they've got, uh, you know, they'll, they'll find a way. They've got friends who are uh, or were uh, fans of that team until their, their good friend was more on this new team. So That's funny. And then were there any guidelines, Peter, that you issued, I'm thinking, uh, as much for the teams, I guess, as the prospects, as far as yeah. with the visuals? It was interesting because some of the teams had a, like a step and repeat behind them. Some of them were obviously just in their kitchen or on their patio. Um, right. were, were there Was there any advice that the league sent to them or were you just uh, hoping for the organic nature of uh, whatever it is it is? I think uh, organic, and I think generally that works. I think the the protocols were much more around around the health side and around the the broader protocols in terms of not only that their health, which is critical, but also role modeling the right behavior. So it was really nobody from the outside coming into these homes. There was in in setup. There was maybe a single IT person who could come and help them, but they weren't in the home for the uh, draft itself. I know it got some publicity. One of the teams had a Winnebago outside with their IT person there in case there was an issue. 
but it was really no real advice. And, and uh, the only other thing, which you know well, was we did have some, we asked for to not have any local sponsors or commercialization mm-hmm. of it. It was really about keeping it organic. But if, you know, Jerry Jones had the Cowboys logo in Salvation Army, who was one <laughs> of our national nonprofits, that's obviously fine. But no, not a lot of, not a lot of direction there. One just side point, it was interesting, I had a call the day after the draft from somebody saying there was a whole side conversation going on on social media from interior designers who may not have been super passionate about the draft, but were glued to see these homes and kind of can see who's got a good interior designer who might need one. So I thought that was something, again, if you had told me that uh, a year ago, I would have laughed. Yeah, I was going to say Jerry Jones didn't have to worry about an environment with anything around him. His looked pretty clean from his uh, from his living room, yeah. from what I could tell. So you mentioned a uh, a test draft before. How did that process go? And uh, were there any things that you learned from that that you weren't expecting? I mean, were you feeling pretty confident after that? We were. I think that you know, there's always the nervous tension as you lead up to an event, and then when you start to see. And I was working out of my wife's third floor office here. She's got her own business, and I've kind of commandeered that. Um, and I set up some monitors here, and we started to the the team on the broadcast operations and IT side were nice enough to set me up with the ability to see those feeds start to populate. So you would see the prospects homes, cameras get up and the GM and head coaches homes and the commissioner's basement camera. Um, so when you started to see those come up, you started to gain confidence. And then as you said, on the selection process side, the nuts and bolts, of the draft itself, we did a, our player personnel team led by Kenny Fiore did a mock draft on Monday afternoon, three days before the draft. And that was really to test and kick the tires on the process, selection process. And we definitely learned things from that. It was, we had redundancy upon redundancy, as you may have seen. We had uh, the teams had used Microsoft Teams to basically use the chat function to submit their pick. But if that went down, there was uh, a 32 wide conference call with everybody on mute. You had the ability to come off mute and announce your selection. And then there was an email backup as well. So we had redundancies. Um, as was reported a bit on that Monday, the, there was a delay on the first pick. Yeah. Um, one of the phone numbers was wrong. The Cowboys phone number was they were calling in was off. So it didn't, uh, it was maybe just the wrong number listed there. So mm-hmm. there was a slight delay. So we learned that lesson, cleaned that up. And then the rest of that mock draft on the Monday was smooth. And I think we came out of that with the GMs and coaches saying, we can do this and this this works well. And then fortunately, we came out of the other side of the draft because we tested and then tested and tested again. We never had to stop the clock. There was no need to go to the contingency scenarios. And you had coaches and GMs really complimentary of the process. And as you saw, they had some fun along the way and appreciated being home with their kids and spouses and uh and, and canines. Right. Out of curiosity for the mock draft, the, were the teams selecting the real names of prospects or did you have a, a fake list of names? Uh, there was a script of, uh, they were basically told uh, a script of who to pick and it was randomly in there. And we tested trades as well. And Kenny Fiore and team came up with, you know, some, some mythical trades. So there was nothing Nothing you could really uh, read into too much there. Uh, the league kind of laid that out. I, mean, I know there was a lot of speculation around how that uh, mock draft would actually be executed, but it was at the end of the day, it was a communications test, but uh, 
it was uh it certainly drew a lot of attention which is great so no one was trading joe montana for dan marino or something during them no it could have been uh, I, I was happy to see I, I loved some radio stations and others did their own kind of mock draft where <laughs> the team selected their greatest player um and submitted their greatest player so uh i love the fun people had with it so, Peter, you alluded a little bit to what your own setup was. I was curious, uh, you know, as the as the head events person for the NFL, what your situation was uh, in your in your house. I mean, how many devices were you on that night of the draft while this is happening? Quite a few, and it was just as a the team was amazing and in so many ways, and everybody was wearing different hats. But we had, uh, like I said, I had a, a laptop in front of me or a Surface in front of me. We had uh, the two monitors to my left that had all of the video feeds coming in. So you could pull up any of the prospect homes or GM or coach homes or the commissioner's home and then had a landline phone, my cell phone, and then had an iPad, which was our all of our communications device. So the communications device, kind of a comms panel where you could just point to point, talk to people. And you know that's our pick line where the information's coming in. So it was good. And then a handful of us were on a kind of video video conference into the commissioner's basement for three days, which was fascinating. So you're kind of on a on a laptop there where he can kind of come over, we can have talk through things, have conversations, script things. So that was a uh, pretty surreal and was a, you know, it was a it was a, a great three days, <laughs> honestly. Right. Do you have a, a dog or anything that you were worried about while all this is going on to just <laughs> try and keep your own peace uh, with all of those devices? We do have a dog. So uh, yeah, Mojo was running around thanks to my wife and kids those days. I was pretty cooped up up here, but uh, yeah, everyone everyone survived. Peter, what about the, the visuals of uh, Roger Goodell's basement? Was there any discussion of once you realized that he was going to have to play a key role here in his own house of exactly where in his house you wanted him to be? Yeah, he was, you know, the commissioner was pretty clear all along, obviously, you know, when it was decided that we we're going to be fully virtual and everyone was going to be in their homes, that he was going to be in his home as well. And as we talked about it, this is the place, the basement, you know, as he describes it, his man cave is where he has, you know, watched football games on Sundays and Thursdays and Monday nights for the last 30 years in that chair, that, that brown leather <laughs> chair that he sat on and, and had made picks on Friday yeah, night. Yeah, he seemed pretty so, comfortable near the, the later rounds. Yeah, so. that, uh, <laughs> that is his go-to chair. So that was the natural spot to do it. And, you know, that's where he watches games. And, and that was, it, it wasn't, wasn't a ton of debate around that. It just, it just made sense. Right. And then what about the, the wall of fans uh, behind him? What was that process like to figure out who was going to be selected? And I imagine you weren't sending all of this video equipment to all of those fans, or maybe you were, I don't know. No, that's that's a good point. So that that was a point. And then the commissioner was very, you know, was very focused on this in a good way in terms of how do we bring that fan energy? I mean, that's as we talked about the, the 600,000 people in Nashville and that energy and the booing. And we can talk about that. But uh, all of that was, you know, how do you bring some of that not only into the basement, but into the broadcast? So we worked with, and there's a gentleman on my team named Tim Tobito, who's just a rock star, who worked with our partner, the famous group. To and their Vixie platform to bring those that virtual inner circle, as we called it, to life, which was, as you said, is on fans' individual phones. They were, you know, sent a link and were be able to join this uh, 
this room, if you will, this this virtual inner circle. And then the team the teams themselves selected 15 fans for night one and 15 fans for night two to be part of the virtual inner circle. And they would, you know, they they hung on there. And obviously we had trades, so they'd be hanging on there the whole time from their home. <laughs> if someone traded up, they'd be ready to go and pop up behind the commissioner. And, you know, he didn't see it all on TV. He got a sense of it that he was having some fun with them. And between picks, Tim would pop them up there on the screen in his basement <laughs> and he would talk to fans or call them out or, you know, whether they'd be booing or having some fun. So it was it was really pretty cool to have that element and added a lot of energy uh, throughout each night. And, you know, night two, uh, Eric Stone Street from Modern Family, a huge Chiefs fan popped mm-hmm. up in the inner circle. <laughs> which was fun. So um, it was never dull. Yeah. What was your stress level like uh, for the first pick? I mean, as things were really happening and you realized this this was actually the thing that you guys were doing, were, were you feeling pretty comfortable just based on how the mock draft had gone or were were you more nervous than you would be in a typical year at that point in time? It was a different kind of nervous. It was, uh, I think we I felt good. And I honestly, this team is so incredible and the work that they did and the testing that they did. And we were we were feeling pretty good because we knew that everything wouldn't be perfect, you know, and and not much broke or froze or other things, but, you know, we knew there'd be some forgiveness for that. We knew we were doing the right thing. We knew that we were doing right by fans and providing escape. We knew that we were going to really pay tribute to those who really matter. um, And they were going to raise a bunch of money and that if something froze or broke, we'd be okay, but we had the right team of experts to make it work. So I won't say we weren't nervous and there's always the butterflies and the what you're feeling in your stomach, which is kind of a good feeling. But overall, yeah. you know, overall we were feeling pretty good as we as we jumped into night one. And then even into night two where it even, you know, in some ways felt better because it even felt more casual and looser. Right. I would imagine by the uh, by the end of it, you guys were feeling uh, fairly comfortable with <laughs> with how things had gone. But uh, I would think on the flip side, there's got to be a notion of not staying too complacent uh, just because things have gone well Never. up to that Never. point. Yeah. Get through Mr. Irrelevant. <laughs> Absolutely. So wh- what happens from here, uh, Peter? Obviously, hopefully you won't be in a position where you need to you know go to the extents that you had to this year because of the circumstances. But are there any aspects of this virtual experience you think that might carry over in a more typical year? Definitely. I, I would say this draft has, you know, forever changed how we think about the draft as an event. I would say the media folks and our broadcast partners would stay the same. Just the intimacy and the humanity of the moments that came to life around this draft taught us that there is there's more of that that we can do and bring to life even in a physical environment next year where we've got fans in Cleveland and a, and a real inner circle and a green room, things like being able to connect with more prospects around the country and their family. Even if we go back to only 20 to 25 prospects physically with their families in Cleveland, the ability to perhaps send those kits again to prospects around the country and be able to connect with more of them in the broadcast, the commissioner FaceTimed with maybe 60 prospects as well, many more than he would have connected with in a normal year. So those type of things where we should be doing that again, we should be finding ways to do that beyond some of the learnings that we'll never kind of take a, ba- a step backwards on in terms of redundancy upon redundancy from a tech standpoint. Some of that intimacy and prospect access, uh, I'm not sure whether in a world where we can gather again, GMs and coaches will be comfortable being in their homes versus in a... <laughs> 
all together next to each other in order, you know, making picks in a draft room. But I know they enjoyed the experience and some have talked about it being even more efficient than it was in a draft room. So we'll see. Fortunately, we've got, you know, just under a year to plan that one versus, uh, you know, four weeks. So we got a lot of things on the table and, and nothing is off the table. Right. At, at the same time, you announced the uh, the dates of the Cleveland draft uh, shortly after the virtual draft. And obviously mm-hmm. so much is unknown. But I mean, Peter, at this point, as we talk now, are you confident that you can have a, a live event? I mean, something like what this traditionally has looked like, or at least closer to it? Is that I imagine that is the plan at the moment moving forward? Yeah, that, that's the plan, Jason, and, and focused on that. And obviously, like anything, and there's a long time between now and a year from now, um, and, and can pivot if need be, and anything we do will follow the public health guidelines. But that would be the plan. But alongside what we just talked about, in terms of bringing some of those insights and innovations from this year that fans loved, that, that we loved, that the clubs loved as, as part of that. So you kind of, in some ways, will bring hopefully the best of both those worlds together as we as we prepare for uh, for next year's draft. Great. Just a, a couple last questions for you, Peter. Um, we are, uh, and I feel like I have to ask it, we're, we're talking just the day after the NFL released its uh, regular season schedule for the coming mm-hmm. season. Yeah, as we just talked about, so much is unknown, but what's your confidence level right now that those events are, one, going to take place and two, take place with spectators in the stands? Yeah, we uh, were... Uh, Excited to to release the schedule last night, and and, and there was a you know a great show and a, and a great broadcast um, overall. And we uh, we are preparing to to play that schedule that was released last night on time on schedule and 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 with fans. But as as I've said before, are prepared to to pivot and you know and, and pursue alternatives if we need to. But that's that's our focus, and I think that you know throughout this off season. That's the approach we've taken, whether it was with free agency or with the draft that we've been discussing or with the virtual offseason training that the team on the football ops side put in place that, you know, we're this is our schedule and putting it out there. And I think you saw in the fan reaction last night, the hope and optimism that exists. And, you know, obviously, as I've said, we, we will follow the, the health and medical guidelines every step of the way and, and do it at put our fans and our players and our staff safety above all else. But that's that's what we're preparing to do as, as we sit here today. Yeah, and I obviously the NFL is not alone in this position, but I think it's fair to say, at least for this year, events and venues are going to have to be making some shifts. Uh, you know, we saw the Dolphins recently come out with their ideas of what that might look like just from the fan experience, but that's going to be an interesting challenge for you guys moving ahead, um, just knowing that this particular crisis is affecting different parts of the country in different ways, and who knows what the what the situation will be. But just the event experience, I think it's fair to say, is going to be changing for a lot of people moving forward. No question, and and that's uh, that's a lot of where our time and energy will be to uh, ensure that uh, we can deliver a, a safe experience for fans and everyone involved. And there are a lot of world class. Uh, smart people out there, both internally at the NFL and at the clubs and, and the partners uh, with whom we'll work to ensure that. Yeah, and I have seen some uh, stories late just looking even further ahead. I know uh, there's always contingency plans put in as far as dates for for the Super Bowl and some of your l- larger events. Are you, are you even thinking, Peter, at this point that far ahead or do you have too much on your plate at the moment before you get there to even think about what the end of that season might look like or, or what contingencies you might need to have in place? Yeah, the Super Bowl is uh, in early February is, is quite a while away, and we are focused along with the the Tampa Super Bowl host committee on that February seventh date, and have been uh, 
actively virtually planning that Super Bowl. Um, so uh, holding lots of meetings with our, our partners down in Tampa and our venues down in Tampa. So we're we're focused on that February 7th date. Yeah. Do, do any of these unknowns factor in, do you think, for future bid processes for all your events, Peter? I mean, uh, so much has had to change on the fly, not just for the NFL, but for uh, quite a few sports organizations here in the last couple of weeks. Do you think that kind of flexibility somehow uh, maybe changes the process uh, for cities that are bidding for your future events or needing to uh, put in just a few more contingencies, not knowing what the situation may be? Uh, it could. You know, it's certainly so many things will, will take so much away from this. And I think it will, you know, it will impact certain things. And, you know, there are a lot of, you know, as you know, and and, and live, this is uh, in the event world, it's, it's always about contingency. This is a, a really unique one, but we'll learn a lot from it and we'll work through it. And we do, as you as you mentioned, and I'm glad you mentioned it, there are so many great partners that we have and, and other properties have at the CVBs and at the sports commissions around the country who are doing incredible work. And I know that they've been hit hard. Um, we'll continue to be good partners with them, but we know that the, the challenges that they're facing right now, which are very real. Right. Well, uh, interesting times ahead. It'll be interesting to see if you uh, get an RFP uh, submitted from Commissioner Goodell, maybe to host something in his basement down the road. That would be interesting if it <laughs> came into the mix. You never know, I suppose. I don't know. You may have seen he did uh, put up on uh, an NFL auction the opportunity to watch a Monday night football <laughs> game in his basement uh, to raise money for our draft-a-thon. So it is, uh, it's a well-known basement now. The <laughs> bobblehead that kept moving around and all the M&Ms you can eat. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. Peter, kudos to your team for everything that you were able to pull off with the draft. It's never easy to pivot on events, and a few events have had to pivot quite to the extent, I think, that you guys did for the draft. So, uh, you know, it was well-received, it seemed, and uh, and I think you deserve all the, the credit that you guys got for, for pulling off something pretty extraordinary. Oh, thanks, Jason. A really, uh, again, a great, great team of people who came together, and I, I wish I could name them all, and they are just, you know, such a such a great inside and outside organizations. So we're glad that we could provide a bit of an escape and do some good. Well, hopefully you'll get back to a normal draft and, uh, and normal events down the road. But Peter, thank you very much for being on with us. We appreciate it and look forward to uh, seeing whatever is next from you and your crew. Thanks, Jason. Really enjoyed it. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.